So here's the parasha of Edmar. There's a review of all the Yamim Tovim, all the special days. And um, it begins... It begins with what's not on the sheet with the, with the holidays that we've just experienced. Right? The holidays we've just experienced, there are two of them. One is called Pesach, and the other holiday is called Chag Matzot. Now, Pesach is the commemoration of the Korban Pesach. You remember that the Jews are instructed to bring a Korban Pesach on Yudalit, on the 14th day of Nisan. And that, um, I don't know where the sheets are. Where? The, um, the Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, is instructed, each of us is instructed to bring a Korban Pesach on the 14th. And what we do is we slaughter it and then we cook it. Uh, I mean, what is that called? You know, what? Sleep. Well, what is that called in English? What? We roast it on a spit, and we roast it for a very long time, and we eat it on that night. We eat it that night so that the first holiday is called Pesach. It's the carbon Pesach. Why the carbon is called Pesach, which means, according to the Torah, to jump over or to leap. Is um, is something that we um, something that we imagine we know the answer to because the Malach Hamavet, the angel of death in Egypt, jumped over the Jewish houses and killed the firstborn in the Egyptian houses. Of course, uh, it's not perfectly clear how this happened in actuality uh, because the Jews and the Egyptians didn't live together. Since the Jews lived in a special place in the land of Goshen, it's not clear why the angel had to jump over anything. And therefore, there are attempts to explain this Pasach more in the lines of, of Rashi, who, who, who said that Pasach, Pesamachet, means to, to be nervous about something, right? There was some kind of nervousness. But so the first holiday in Nisan is called Pesach and it's connected to the Korban Pesach and that uh, overlaps another another holiday that we call Chag Hamatzot right? Chag Hamatzot are the seven days when we are uh, well the first of the seven days we're directed to eat a matzah Right? And that's what we do. We eat a matzah. The other six days, right? The other six days, we're directed not to eat chametz. So all seven days, you can't eat chametz. So if you want to eat bread or something like bread, you have to eat matzah. You know that there is a position, the Vildagon held that every time you eat matzah on Pesach, you're doing a mitzvah. Right? Every time you eat matzah. It is, uh, because there's a passage that says Shivat Yamim Tochlu Matzot that you should eat Matzot for seven days so the Vildegon said that that was even though it's not a mitzvah that you have to do but if you do it you're doing a mitzvah 
Right? You, if you do it, you're doing it uh, uh, mitzvah. In modern times, today there's also because of uh, of the Vilna Gaon who apparently would have eaten matzah bride given the opportunity. I'm not sure that is. So, but today there's like a a difference of opinion amongst Jews. Thankfully, I mean, what else are we gonna to make life interesting about if you eat matzah bride? Are you doing something that's so terrible that it certainly couldn't be a mitzvah of any kind? And I always say it where, where I live, uh, I used to, uh, I like to make matzah bride and, and eat it, and, but I have to, but I have to close the shutters before I before I do it and declare a moratorium on guests. Like no one can come in and out while I'm eating matzah bride. Uh, I was once in the Ramada. On Pesach, like you know, et chata ayani maskir. I mean, to spend Pesach in a, in a hotel for me is not the greatest thing in the world. But uh, I was there once, and so we're eating, and so I sort of like consciously, I took the matzah and I started breaking it into my soup, which is what I had done my entire life. And uh, the waiter comes over to me and he says, you have to do that. I'll get you a paper plate. Now, of course, the exciting thing was that the waiter was an Arab. So, so this, this led me to think that there's hope for the future because no matter how the peace talks will turn out, I can imagine the Arabs like teaching me how to keep pace up. You know, it would be, it would be a new level of uh, peace and quiet in the, in the state of Israel. I mean, certainly the prime minister and his friends are not going to teach me much about Pesach. But this Arab waiter, he had it very clear. So we have a holiday called Pesach in the Torah, Torah, the Torah. And the holiday called Pesach is connected to the Korban Pesach. And the Korban Pesach is started the day before what we call Pesach, right during the middle of the day, and the roasting of the Korban goes up until very late in the evening, and at the end there's a mitzvah to eat the meat of the Korban Pesach, al matzot umrodim, with matzah and maror. That's how we do it. But the holiday of the 15th of Nisan is called Chagamatzot. And you know that because when somebody gets up at the Seder to make Kiddush, he makes Kiddush because we have arrived at Chagamatzot. And Chagamatzot is the seven days of our lives when we can only eat matzah and not eat chametz. We can eat matzah and not eat chametz. And the symbolism there is somehow that the matzah beats, that somehow we beat the chametz. We, we stop it from becoming chametz. You put the flour in the water, you make a little kind of cracker out of flour and water, you stick it into the oven, and you know if you leave it there for a while, it'll become chametz, it'll rise, like, uh, like everything does. But we take it out so fast that it doesn't, it doesn't rise. That's called matzah. Matzah is, we stopped it from becoming chametz, so that on Pesach, on the seventh days of what we call Pesach, which the Torah calls Chagamatzot, which the Chachamim called Chagamatzot, during those seven days we eat matzah, and we avoid, we avoid eating chametz. And matzah 
itself represents that avoidance, right? Because it's 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 close, but it's not quite close, but not quite. Now, the Torah says. The Torah continues. Once we know that these two holidays exist and that they overlap, right? They overlap on the first night of of Chagamatzot because at the end of that evening we eat uh, a Korban Pesach. We call that Korban Pesach today Afikoman. We call it Afikoman even though uh, Afikoman represents really the fact that we haven't got a Korban Pesach. Not that we have a Korban Pesach, but that we haven't got a Korban Pesach. Now, the Korban as you know, is the most annoying part of the, uh, of the, of the evening, because, because your children and or grandchildren who come back from Yeshiva have very strange ideas about how much of it you have to eat after an evening of eating. You know, it's not as though anybody is hungry for a piece of matzah, but, uh, that's how it is. That, 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 that's how it is. We're all tired and, uh, and we have uh, some kids stole the Afikoma and it's really a, like kind of a mess. Uh, but uh, hopefully we get through it. The good thing about the Afikoma is that we try to eat it before Chatzot. Imagine if we had all night to do it. That would really be... In any event, Pesach and Matzah. Now we're looking at the parasha. We're looking at our psukim. The Torah says, "By the Be'er Shem, by the Be'er El Bnei Yisrael, Ramat Alehem, Kita Boel Haaretz, Kita Boel Haaretz." There's something about there's the, that what what is about to be stated, which is connected to Kita Boel Haaretz. When you come to the land, Asher Aninotein Lachem, Uksartem Et Tzirovati Beitem Et Omer Reishit Kitzurchem El Atohei. The word Omer, the word Omer is a measure. It's a volume measure for, usually for things that are dry. A dry volume measure. How much exactly an Omer is doesn't interest us right now. I'm generally very bad on those things. And whatever they tell me to do, this is also my grandchildren, whatever they tell me, I do what they say. I never argue about measures. But they tell me something different every year. <laughs> so, I figure that somehow in silence, I'm, I'm vict- uh, victorious. So, he says, you cut down the, the standing wheat, and you take an omer of it, Now it says, like, when do you, you come to the land, it doesn't say when yet. So you bring the Omer to the Kohen. The Kohen heaves it. Like up and down. The Gemara says front and back. Like, you know, like a lulav and an etrog. When you make the bracha and lulav and etrog, you heave it up and down and front and back. Actually, with the, we've expanded it with the lulav and the etrog, we do it in six directions, which is all there are, right front and back, right and left, up and down. Well, those are, that's the way, it was when we take, we take the lulav and etrog, and before halel, on, on Sukkot, that, that's usually the way we do it. People who make a bracha on the etrog outside of tefillah, like, uh, you know, many women, 
make a bracha on the lulav and they drug, they, they often don't do that. It's not part of the essential mitzvah of lulav and etrog. The essential mitzvah of lulav and is to take it. But this has been expanded in the time of the Gemara to include indicating the, God's dominion over the entire world. It is kind of a, it turns into kind of a prayer. It turns into kind of a prayer. So that's a, uh, people who are davening, or going to say Hallel, if you're going to say Hallel, that, then you do it that way. You, you know, men got used to it and women didn't get used to it. Uh, here the Pasuk says, and then it says, And this has been a, this was a problem for about 2,000 years. These words, because everybody understands that the primary meaning of the word Shabbat is the seventh day of the week. The seventh day of the week is called Shabbat, and it recurs again and again and again. That's what Shabbat is. As opposed to Chag. Chag is something else. Chag has a date. Like Pesach starts on the 15th day of, of Nisan. Uh, what we call Pesach, and I don't want to get Chagamatzot starts on the fifteenth day of Nisan, right? Now the fifteenth day of Nisan is a variable. You don't know when it's going to be. I mean, today you have to understand everything has changed. I mean, we all know that. Today we have a calendar, and we can know the calendar for next year and the year afterwards. And you know, if you know about the calendar, you know there's a nineteen-year cycle. So if you have 19 copies of the Luach, of what's called the Luach, you're covered forever, because it just recurs every 19, every 19 years. So the, um, uh, but in theory, when the month was determined by witnesses who saw the new moon, you have a recollection of that? That's the first mitzvah. To Am Yisrael, upon Yitziat Mitzrayim, the first mitzvah they received is called is called Kiddush Chodesh to establish the new moon. And the way you establish the new moon is by looking up at heaven. If you see it, you see a sliver of the new moon. You go running, you go running to the uh, to Yerushalayim. You go to the Beit Din and you tell them that you saw it. And they declare the new moon, so you know that. It's variable because what if it, it's cloudy and nobody saw the new moon? So the Rosh Chodesh becomes tomorrow and not today. I mean, everybody understood that the month could be 29 days or 30 days, right? The last month. So if it's not 29, then it'll be 30, but that, that's it. So, so there's a variable aspect to the month. And therefore, there's a variable aspect to. Uh, to Pesach, what we call Pesach. We don't know what day it's going to come out on, in theory. You know, the time that there was a, uh, uh, a witness and a baked in and, and all, of, all of that. So we wouldn't know exactly when it, would, when it would come out. We wouldn't know exactly when it would come out. So Shabbat and Yom Tov are differentiated by the fact that we know when Shabbat is going to be. It's going to be in another couple of days, and after that, seven days, and after that, seven days. It never varies. It never varies. It was, there was this problem in modernity, you know, when the Jews got to Tokyo, 
And they weren't in World War Two. World War Two is not such a long time ago. I mean, it is, but not such a long time ago. That when they got to Tokyo, somebody told them that they had crossed that line, you know, the international date line. The international date line. And, and nobody knew whether the international date line was halachically obligatory. Or, and when everybody figured out that there had to be some date line, that is some time, not everybody, this is already to be shown and talk about this, this earlier, a lot earlier in Jewish halacha, that, that there had to be some way of figuring out when the day and the night, what day it was in the daytime and what day it was in the nighttime. So, uh, so they figured out something, but they didn't like it. And that's why the people from the yeshiva, that's part of the reason, but it's why the people, the, the mere yeshiva that made its way to Tokyo, then went back to Shanghai. You know Shanghai? Uh, these are all cities controlled by Lubavitch and Shluchin. But, but they went back to Shanghai because the Shabbos in Shanghai was the same as the Shabbos in Russia. And that was... Uh, I mean, the other, uh, uh, or the alternative would have been to keep Shabbos two days a week, which was not so practical, and then to fast two days on Yom Kippur, which was certainly not, you know, very practical. So they went back to Shanghai, where they at least thought they knew, because they said it was like, it was like uh, Amir, where they came from. It was like Russia, where most of the students uh, came from, so that was all right. So now we're talking about the Maharata Shabbat, the nat- natural inclination would be for us to say that Mocharat Shabbat is the day after Shabbat. And Shabbat is a day that appears once every seven days. And therefore, when would this whole business take place? Well, it would take place on the first Shabbat in Pesach, whenever that, whenever that happened to be. Right? But the tradition, um, the rabbinic tradition is that the word Shabbat in this pasuk means Yom Tov. And therefore, Memocharata Shabbat means the day after Pesach. In other words, there's Pesach, which is a day that you can't do any work on. Right? And then there's the day after the first day of Pesach, where at least in theory you can go out into the, into the, um, into the fields and harvest the new grain and bring it for the next morning, an omer of the neck of the new grain, or you bring it to the beta to the beta mikdash. Uh, this, of course, you run into a problem. You run into a problem that is, if the first day of Pesach turns out on Friday, no, you find that disagreeable. The first day of Pesach turns to, is on Friday. That means the day after the first day of Pesach is Shabbat. And, and harvesting the grain is forbidden on Shabbat. And therefore the Mishnah, right, the Mishnah Menachot, the Mishnah Menachot in the sixth parish called Rabbi Yishmael, the Mishnah discusses how are you supposed to do it if the first day of Pesach is Friday and the first day of Chol is Shabbat. How do you do it? So, so the Mishnah offers various suggestions there, but the basis of the suggestion is that you should not harvest really more than an omer. 
You can't just go out there and cut down the wheat that you find in the field. You have to go out there and, and grab onto an omer's worth of it. And uh, with a couple of people there, you harvest exactly the amount, or close to exactly the amount that you're supposed to bring to the Beit HaMikdash so that the Kohen can heave it up and down on the second day of Passover, which might be Shabbat. So that there are two things about Mimacharat Shabbat that you have to remember, and that is one, that we have accepted uh, the more, the less obvious pshat, that Shabbat in this pasuk means Yom Tov. And the second thing is that in spite of the fact that this produces a problem, this produces a problem which is never produced in the other system. If you say that Mimacharat Shabbat is the day after Shabbat, you never have this problem. Because the day after Shabbat could be Yom Tov, but on Yom Tov you're allowed to do things for food. You're allowed to prepare food, and if this was a necessary kind of preparation, so that would be all right. The second thing that you have to know about this uh, this uh, korban, uh, it says um, it says Pasuk Yud Bet. Well, uh, let's look here at Pasuk Yud Aleph in Rashi. See Mimocharata Shabbat. You see the Rashi. It's the sixth line in the Rashi, seventh line. Mimocharat Shabbat, Mimocharat Yom Tov Harishon Shal Pesach, as I just explained. Right? After the first day of Pesach, after the first day of Pesach, She'em Ata Omer Shabbat Breshit, E'ata Yadah, E'zehu. Because Rashi says, if you would think that Mimocharat Shabbat is referring to the Shabbat, the seventh day of the week, then the Pasuk, how do you know which Shabbat are you talking about? I mean, we know what the Karaites said. And we know what uh, the Tzedukim said before that. But it doesn't, the Pasuk doesn't indicate, according to Rashi, which Shabbat of the year we're talking about. And since the Pasuk doesn't indicate which Shabbat of the year we're talking about, the traditional Pshat, which is that it's the day after the first day of Pesach, the traditional pshat is more correct, let us say, acceptable, reasonable, understandable, good, right? All of those, all of those things. So it says, uh, then, and then it, it says in Pasuk Yud Gimel, um, well, Pasuk Yud Bet, is that you have to bring an Allah, right? A, an offering which is completely consumed, and then a mincha, a meal offering, and then And then the Pasuk says an interesting thing, and that is what we call we call today Khadash. That you can't eat anything that is made from the new wheat, the wheat that grew over the winter, right, and was in the standing fields on Pesach. You can't use that wheat until you bring this korban ha'omer, which is like in a, a an omer's worth, and it's heaved by the kohen. And when the kohen heaves it, when the kohen heaves it, then suddenly something has happened in the galaxies of the halachic world, and that is that the wheat that you were not allowed to use suddenly became permissible. When was it permissible? After the Korban HaOmer was given. What time of the day was the Korban HaOmer given? We don't know. As early as possible. It doesn't have a, doesn't have a specific uh, uh, time. 
Right, the korban haomer doesn't have a specific time, uh, but it's on that day. It's on that day, and when the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was asked, "What are we supposed to do? I mean, when do we eat? When do we eat the uh, the new, you know, bread from the new wheat?" So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, "Well, zecher la mikdash, in order that we remember." What was going on once in the Beit Hamikdash? In order, because of that, Yom Hanef Kulo Asur. We will impose. We will, even though everybody knows that they brought the Korban Haomer as early as they could on that day, on the sixteenth day, we can't bring the Korban Haomer, and therefore we won't eat the Chadash, the new wheat, on the sixteenth, but we'll wait till the seventeenth. And that's what we do today. That's what we do today, and uh, you know, generally speaking, generally speaking, Chodosh is not a problem in Eretz Yisrael, at least has not been a problem in Eretz Yisrael. What used to happen was the wheat that we ate, the bread that we eat, that we ate was made of wheat that was imported from America and Canada, and by the time it got to Israel, it was long after the Chodosh issue had come up. And wheat that was grown in Israel, I mean, the Rabbanut Rashid, I mean, I don't know how this arrangement works today, but when I was uh, looking into these things, um, the, the wheat that's grown to Israel is used to feed animals. And the wheat that's imported to Israel is used to feed the people. So that somehow Hadash was never really a big issue. I mean, they arranged it that way. It's not that. Uh, so that because there was a time when American Canada had tremendous excesses of wheat that were kept in silage, right, someplace in the, in the Midwest. And by the time it came to Israel, it was long after. It was long after the 17th or the 16th of the month of. Of Nisa. Now that has changed. I understand. Now I'm getting a little fuzzy, but I think that in America they don't quite produce that much grain. And they don't have the excesses that they used to have. Uh, but somehow, somehow we work it out. In America, however, Chagash uh, has become all the rage. All the rage. Also in England, little by little, you know, the English are a stiff-necked people. But even in England, it has like made its way into into consciousness. So that in America, there's a fellow in Muncie who sits in front of a computer and tracks bales of wheat. Is that the right word? I don't mean bales. I mean sacks. Apparently, all the sacks of wheat in the United States of America are numbered. And therefore, you can know when they were born and how old they are. And if you know when they are born and how old they are, you can sort of avoid that. He also gives you the service of telling you which bakeries in the Northeast happen to have wheat that is not chadosh. Isn't that remarkable? You never thought of that. And, uh, and, and in England, there was, a, there was a Dayan who was very much, you know, into this. And at the beginning, at the beginning, they, they also claimed 
Um, not to get this straight. Uh, there's a bakery in London that has several outlets called Grzynski's. And Mr. Grzynski was a bit of a hothead. And when I asked him about it, he um, lost his cool and he said, no problem, it comes from who knows where, Russia. Or, uh, you know, they get it from somewhere and they're sure that everything is all right, even though the Dayan, who was... Um, who, who was inclined to worry about Hadash um, said that was not exactly the case. Hadash is sociologically an interesting prohibition because while it's true that in the, the, amongst the Jewish people that the Hasidim are more stringent than the Yeshiva people, usually, right? You know the Hasidim, they wear funny clothes? So and they and they're very stringent in their funny clothes attitudes. They do it their way, and everything is their way, and and they generally are uh, able to impose their will on others. Because when you're certain about something, it's hard to beat you down. So the Hasidim don't care about chadash. You believe that? They just don't care about. It. And the yeshiva guys are nervous about it. Why is this? Because the Bach, the Bach, the Bach wrote a commentary on the tour. It's all like unclear if his words don't mean anything. The Bach wrote a commentary on the tour. The Bach's name was Rabbi Yoel's Circus. And Karl Bach always claimed that he was a direct descendant of the Bach, something that I would never check out. But it could be, right? Why not? So the Bach wrote that the prohibition of Chodesh only exists for Jewish wheat. It was just only if there's a Jewish farmer who grows the wheat and then cuts it down that the prohibition of Chodesh is applicable. However, if you have non-Jews who are doing this, and so uh, it's qu- so it's quite all right. So the Bach invented a heter for all the Jews who today eat wheat that's made by grown by and and, and harvested by non-Jews. That that's not what the Torah is talking about. The Torah says kitavola aretz, referring to the Jews who do this, who grow the wheat, that make the... And so the Hasidim accepted the, uh, the position of the, of, the, of the Bach. Now, why did the Hasidim accept the position of the Bach? So there's a story. There's a story which goes with this uh, distinction. That they came to the Baal Shem Tov. Into the Baal Shem You know the Baal Shem Tov? a very important person in the world of Hasidim. <coughs> they came to the Baal Shem Tov and they asked the Baal Shem Tov, what are we going to do? How are we going to be able to make to make beer before Pesach? I mean, if you can't drink the beer, you can't very well be a Chassid, can you? <laughs> so, the Chassid, so the Bach says, so the Baal Shem Tov said, it's a heavenly decree it's obvious that the Bach is right. Because God would not leave us 
without beer for such a long period of such a long period of time. So there you have the circle is closed, and the Hasidim accepted the header of the bath. Parentheses in order that they should be able to drink all the beer they wanted, and the misnagdim who were not so big on drinking, uh, yeshiva guys who were not so big on drinking. I wonder what they did for fun, but they weren't drinkers, so they uh, uh, they're nervous. They got nervous about chodesh and everybody in America and in England to a certain extent got um, got nervous. And that's why in England the superior hechsher. You know, there's a superior, every place you go, there's a superior hetcher. The way that you know that it's superior is that the people who give that hetcher can't speak the language of the land. <laughs> I didn't know it was that funny. It was okay. <laughs> so they, they, so they, they, uh, the superior hetcher is given by people who don't speak the language of the land. So that the same Mr. Grzynski, whose hatcher is called, it's Kedasya. Kedasya in London, or in England, is like Satpur. It's like Satpur because they're a bunch of Satpur Hasidim. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, they include a few other people. They're like Satpur type guys. Everybody has a lot of faith in people who look like that to give you the best possible hatcher option, Right? So, uh, so in England, Mr. Grzynski, who is not a Satmar Chassid by any means, in fact, one might call him even modern Orthodox, Rachmana Litzlah. So, Mr. Grzynski was getting annoyed by this whole uh, business about Chodosh, and so, and he knew that his wheat was not Chodosh, not because uh, they had it organized. It was just a de facto situation. So Grzynski put a sign up in the bakery to the effect that there's no problem of chodosh in anything that we make. That we make. And the Kadasia guys that were given the hatcher, right, forced him to take it down because they said, you, you can't be matter of something that doesn't have to have a heter. Right? <laughs> so, the, like, all the other people, all the Hasidim would get nervous if they saw them. So they made him take down the sun. Yeah. Do you have a story? A story? Appropriate story? Um, the Pasuk seems to be quite <coughs> precise about uh, the fact that it's Kashuk and Tisrael, the Kitab Wela Aretz. Yet, from what you've been saying, it's a Mitzvah which is Kalim as well. Yes, Machlok is Tanoi. So Bachlok's Tanoim in the Gemara and Kedushin. I mean, I don't want to get into that, but it is. Um, so in any event, we're up to... Uh, so, so, so we see that, that Chodosh is also a matter. It's not just an obligation to bring this uh, Omer to the Beit HaMikdash, but bringing the Omer to the Beit HaMikdash is a matter. It allowed you to eat what you weren't able to eat before. Just like shechita, shechita when you shecht an animal properly, right? Your the animal becomes permitted, right? You can eat it. You can't just bite off a piece of the of the animal while it's alive and eat it. That's called eber minachai or, or something similar. But you could you have to do something which makes the animal permissible 
to be eaten. Similarly, the wheat that grows in the in the land, either the land of Israel or the land or you're all, all over the world, uh, is is allowed only when you bring the korban haomer. And therefore, Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai thought that he has to relate to this even after the destruction of the temple, even after the destruction of the temple. So that's that's what uh, uh, that's what it says. You see that pasuk, pasuk Yudalit? It says could mean either every place you happen to be in Eretz Israel, or it could be every place you happen to be in the in the world. And then it says So now we are living. We move in like almost. Uh, without taking, uh, like changing our stride, we, we go from the Omer to Svirat, what we call Svirat HaOmer, but really we mean Svirat Meha Omer. From the time that the Korban Omer is given, on uh, that night we start counting 49 days. So the way the Torah sets it up, it would seem that there's some sort of connection between Svirat HaOmer and what happened before Svirat HaOmer, right? There was Pesach. And matzot, chaga matzot, and then the mitzvah of Omer in the Torah, and then usvartim lachem. You should count forty-nine days. And here it says again. Here again it says ad mocharata shabbat shviit, right? Shabbat mocharata shabbat shabbat. Well, we've already explained what mocharata shabbat means in relation to the Omer uh, sacrifice. So we could assume that Bokhrata Shabbat, again, when it comes to Sriata Omer, means the same thing. So we have, again, Chaga Pesach, which starts on Yudalit. Chaga Matzot, which starts on Tetvah. The Chaga the Omer, which starts on the next day, the, the, the night after the Tetvah, which is Tet Zion. And then we have Sriata Omer, which starts at the, again at the same time. Now Sriata Omer, Sriata Omer is not clear. We understand Pesach somehow was the beginning of faith, as we have spoken previously, that Moshe Rabbeinu said, lo yaminuli, that this is the problem, the problem of B'nai Yisrael is the problem of faith. They don't have emunah, whatever that might mean. And we know that Yitziat Mitzrayim, that Yitziat Mitzrayim over time solved that problem, because it says after Kriyat Yamsuf, that there was emunah that was instilled and from this emunah there derived certain mitzvot certain mitzvot that have to be accomplished to commemorate, to reflect upon to be connected to so we understand that Pesach is connected we understand that Matzah is connected and we now understand that Omer somehow connects uh, the land, the land, mostly in Eretz Israel. When you come to Eretz Israel, to Yitziat Mitzrayim, right? That there is that there is some kind of a connection. But what does Svirata Omer? What could Svirata Omer possibly have to do with whatever is going on in Yitziat Mitzrayim? Because Svirata Omer seems to be like I count forty nine days until I am able to say this is the fiftieth day. And you know what happens on the 50th day? <coughs> what happens on the 50th day? <coughs> There's a sacrifice of chametz. Shtei Just like the Omer was matir. The Omer was matir chametz 
right, not chomis, the, the, the wheat, the wheat uh, uh, for Bnei Yisrael, the korban that's given on the 50th day is matter the chomis for the Mizbeach. Is matter the chomis for the Mizbeach. So this is like you have this connection, right, and we don't understand exactly where Surata Omer comes comes into to this uh, so what I'd like to do is quickly describe to you how the uh, the Panemia Fot how the Panemia Fot deals with this question the Panemia Fot the Panemia Fot is a, a, a book on Chumash that was written on it's a wonderful book I can tell you it was written by Pinchas Alevi Ish Horowitz who was ultimately the rub in Frankfurt. He came from, of course, from Eastern Europe and became uh, the rub. He was a shaliach. He was a shaliach of the um, uh, Hasidut. He was a shaliach of Hasidut, the Magid, the great Magid of Mizrich, who was the primary... I mean, again, here I'm not... Uh, not everybody would agree, but to a certain extent, he became the leader after the Baal Shem Tov. Whether he was the greatest Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov or not, that's something that you could continue to discuss after the Shir is over. But he was certainly either the greatest or very close to being the greatest. And without a doubt, when it came to organization, when it came to like being able to, uh, to put something together, he was the greatest. So... Pinchas Halevi Ish Horowitz, he was sent to Frankfurt, a place where no one ever heard of Hasidut or Hasidim or Eastern European Jewry, and he was there for a, a, a great number of years, and, um, and, and you know from his, like his output, he had this tremendous uh, output of, um, of uh, Torah uh, books. He wrote many books on, on Talmud, and he wrote on Chumash, and he wrote on Musar. He had this tremendous output, which, you know, reflects the fact that he was basically unsuccessful. If he had a lot of spare time, that, that's what I mean. If you, if you are a successful rabbi, you don't have time. And if you're writing books, a rabbi writes books, has time for writing books, is probably not such a successful rabbi. That was the situation here. He was not able to convert in spite of his great uh, scholarship, which is how he got the job of being the rabbi in Frankfurt. In spite of his great scholarship, he was not able to convince the people in Germany that they should adopt a Hasidic uh, demeanor in order to serve God better. He wasn't able. He wasn't able to do that, as uh, as you know, as opposed to uh, to other great emissaries of the Magid Mitzrich, for example, the Balatanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was able to uh, to create Hasidut in the cities in which he uh, in which he lived. And what? Not in Germany. No, not in Germany. No, Lubavitch was in Lubavitch. Not, not Germany. Germany was a hard nut for Hasidut to crack, and it remains, I guess, probably uncracked to this day. 
even though Germany today is not a continuation really of Germany of yesteryear. But the Germany today is like a lot of Russian Jews and Israelis, like some combination of Russian and Israeli Jews. I guess there are a few real Germans there someplace, but not many. So this is what, uh, this is the Panemia folk. So the first thing that the Panemia folk says, uh, well, I don't, I don't think we have time to, to read it, but um, I don't think we have time to read it, but I'll just tell you, I'll summarize what it says. I'll summarize what it says. The thing that I wanted to, what I wanted to tell you is that the the panim the panim yafot is uh, the Rebbe. He takes off from a, uh, a medrash, a medrash, and the medrash says this. He says, uh, he says a person should not treat the mitzvah of Omer as a uh, as an insignificant one. <coughs> mitzvah to Omer, listen to this. Zoha Abraham This is because of the mitzvah of Omer, right, that Abraham Avinu merited merited uh, the land. He inherited the land of Canaan. And that's what the Pasuk says means when so even though when you read the parasha in Lechlecha, when you read the parasha in Lechlecha, it sounds like Aram Avinu is inheriting, is inheriting the land because of the mitzvah of Milo, of Bris Milo. And yet the Medrash says, no, no, no. Aram Avinu is inheriting the land because of the mitzvah of Omer. Now, of course, you know, you have to have a certain kind of way of looking at things. I mean, something that, that is a, um, that, that just doesn't fit together. It just doesn't mean anything. What, what does Avram Avinu have to do with Omer? What does Avram Avinu have to do with the mitzvah of Omer? There's no indication, unless you say that uh, Avram Avinu kept all of the mitzvot, but there was certainly no Beit Midash and no Kohen and no one to bring the Omer to. So where does Avram Avinu get into this, get into this deal? So he says this. He says that uh, that the pasuk in Shira Shirin, if you look at the, the second the second part of the of the sheet here, the pasuk in Shira Shirin. You see Shira Shirin. Kol dodei hinezer ba mitalegal eharit mikapets al hadvod. Kol my lover, the voice of my lover is coming. Mekapets al I'm sorry, medaleg, medaleg to skip on the mountain tops. Mekapets and jumps over the the valleys. Right, domedodilitzvi. My beloved is like a tzvi. What? A deer. A deer. Right. You know, you can imagine in your minds a deer jumping from one place to another. Ola ofer haayalim. So, uh, what, is, what is this talking about? 
Right? What is this uh, talking about? So the commentary that the Padim Yafot is uh, talking about, or that's referring to, that commentary is that that's Pesach. That's jumping. Who's jumping? Uh, we're jumping. What's the Dodi? After all, we know what is the Dodi referred to in, in rabbinic understanding. Dodi is referring to Klal Yisrael, right? The beloved, the beloved of God. So how is the beloved of God described? Jumping. Jumping from one hilltop to another. Jumping over one valley and the other. Who's jumping? Who's jumping? Am Yisrael. Well, when are they jumping? When were they jumping? So, so, so we, we have talked about this. They, they, they were jumping at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. They were, and, and that's what Pesach is. Pesach is not the jumping of the Malach HaMobes that didn't have to jump. It's the jumping of Am Yisrael, which is, according to the Rav Tzodek, we, we learned, according to Rav Tzodek HaKohen, this jumping represents the beginning of faith. It's a moment. It's something extreme. Right? You don't just jump over mountains. But something could happen that would get you to jump over a mountain. So that, that, that there is this uh, pasuk in Shira Shirim, which, if you like, want to read it the way I've just presented it to you, that indicates that the beginning of faith for Am Yisrael is represented by jumping. It's not that jumping is something that you need to do that, that is equal to faith. No. I mean, you can, you can jump in the Olympics and that has nothing to do with, has nothing to do with faith, but jumping represents a kind of uncontrolled act. Something that you can't, that you can't uh, um, bridle. You can't put a stop to it. I mean, that's what, that's what jumping, that's what jumping, so jumping, Pesach, Piseach, is, some, is a word that is applied to the beginning of faith. Something that is, that becomes sort of incomprehensible to you. You don't know why it happened. You don't know why you did it. And that's why you have to be directed to, to ways to enhance that faith. To change what you, what you, uh, what you are doing, not to leave it be as it was, not to have that momentary experience and then go on. It's not like, it's not like a, 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 you know, smoking the hash and then going home and going to sleep. It's not like that. It's, it creates a need. It was the jumping, the, the religious moment create, uh, creates a need which, uh, and that need is, how do you keep it going? How, how do you keep the connection going? So the way you keep the connection going is by bringing a carbon pesach, by eating a matzah, by not eating, by not eating comets, by, in, in other words, as you are directed by God in the way you're supposed to live, well, I mean, it may not be jumping, but it is uh, the protection of the memory of the jumping. And that's why, that's why, Pesach, the beginning of Pesach is called Pesach, but the name for the holiday is Chagamatzos. In other words, Pesach is the time of of extreme of, of an extreme religious uh, uh, reaction to what is going on, and Matzot is the acceptance of the way God wants us to live. Right? There's there's a certain kind of of enhancement here. 
of these of these two things. And then the Panam Yafot, the Panam Yafot continues. He quotes several uh, several pasuk sukim, and he, he says that that this is a description of the future. That in the future, in when the Jews are in exile, they'll go through this process again, this process of discovering Pesach, and then Matzot. Uh, 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 and Chaga Matzot, all of this is going to uh, to happen. And then he says, Abraham, In other words, there are these references. Avram Avinu met up with God when he was 48 years old. Right? 48 is one day less than 49. One year less than 49. Because... Who was Avram Avinu? Avram Avinu was Mitchilo of the Avodah Zorah Yuavotelo. I know that when you say that, God, most people say Mitchilo of the Avodah Zorah Yuavotelo. That's terror. But he, Rapiches Alevi Yishorowitz, he says, no, no, that's Avram Avinu. And so Avram Avinu, 48 years of his life, he lived like a, he lived like a, like an idolater. I mean, he was an idolater. He was like his father. And he, and he says, and that's what we mean when we say, Mitchilo of the Avodah Zorah, Yavoteinu, Shneemar, etc. And therefore, and therefore we understand that there are 50 Share Kedusha. This is what we learn from Avram Avinu. That Avram Avinu was 49 years old, and he had to go through 49 years in order to get to the 50th, in order to get to the Kedusha, to recognize the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was the creator of the world and demanded and demanded uh, uh, our attention. Right? We had to be attentive. Attentive to that fact that we learn from Avram Avinu. And therefore, and therefore, in the reconstruction of the beginning of faith, and the beginning of faith is Pesach, right? According to the Padre Beginning of faith is Pesach. And that continues with mitzvot. Eat matzahs, don't eat chametz. And then, not only don't eat chametz, but you can't use the new wheat until you bring the korban ha'omer. And then you have to understand that life is a process, 49, 49 levels of kedusha, And we remind ourselves of that by counting svirat ha'omer, by counting svirat ha'omer, and that's the life of Avram Avinu, according to the Panim Yafot. And therefore, the medrash that says the Medrash says that Avram Avinu was the one who got Eretz Yisrael because, because Avram Avinu kept the Omer. Because of the Omer, it doesn't mean that he brought the Korban Omer, according to the Padimia folk, but it means that he, in his own life, he became the ultimate model for what we are doing in our own lives. Like, what do we do when we count Sviyat Omer? What are we doing when we're counting another day and another day and another day? And that each day goes up, right? There's another number. And the number is yesterday plus one. He says, so, so the Padimia folk means, Avram Avinu taught us that that's the possibility in real. In, in the real of things, even though, even though we may not know it, we may not feel it, we may not always be able to put our fingers on it, but that's what life is about. It's a lot about taking a step up, 
take a step up of that Sfirat HaOmer again and again and again. And in order for the the Shteyalechem, in order for the bread, the Chomet's sacrifice, to be brought to the Beit HaMikdash, we have to prove, we have to prove that we want it to be, that it has to uh, 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 grow in us. And that's what Sfirat HaOmer is. And therefore the Medrash says, as it says, according to the Padim Yafot, correctly, it's in Vayikarava and in uh, the al repeats the Medrash that, that the uh, um, that this idea that built into, like at the same time, you have the feeling for the end of things, that's like the beginning of faith, like the beginning of faith is really the end. It's just that we can't maintain that level of interaction, but we have to go back and build it up step by step by step, and that's what Avram Avinu taught us. He was able to do it, and therefore he was over to Eretz Yisrael. Have a good Shabbos.